0: Good morning. Hope you're feeling a bit warmer than you were before you came in here. Very grateful for heaters this morning. So if you've not been here over the past three weeks, or maybe your brain needs a bit of a refresher, we've been going through a journey uh, through the key moments in the book of Exodus. We have learned of a God who hears the cry of his people and responds, a God who confronts evil and a God who saves his people. And today we are entering into the second half of this journey, which is really its pinnacle. Now, it's a little weird to say that it's the pinnacle uh, when we think about everything we've covered. God has appeared in a burning bush to Moses. He sent Moses to Pharaoh to demand his people Israel be let go. He sent miraculous signs and plagues. And surely the climax was when he led his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and the waves came crashing down on Israel's pursuers, and finally, they were free. And well, indeed, that is the narrative pinnacle, the moment that the book has been leading up to. But now we move into something that forever changes the history of God's people, the covenant and the giving of the law. And before we embark on this exciting journey today, I want to tell you that it really is exciting because I know that some of you might not believe me. I mean, how exciting can Old Testament law really be? Isn't it boring and pretty much irrelevant for us today, living out of the New Testament in the New Covenant? Well, let me tell you, and then allow me the privilege of showing and hopefully proving to you that it is far from irrelevant and boring. It is an exciting look at how God relates to his people how he reveals himself, how they live out their unique purpose in the world. And well, anything that is part of God's revelation is never going to be irrelevant to us. Now spoilers, Christ fulfills the law, but he doesn't abolish it. Rather, it becomes part of who we are as God's people, at our very core, within our heart. Understanding the law and its purpose is actually pretty important. So if you stick with me in this journey, I hope that you will come to appreciate the amazing gift of the law to Israel and learn how it relates to us as Christians today. So last week, Andrew took us through the story of God's gracious and miraculous act of salvation when he brought the Israelites out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, saving them from the chasing Egyptian army. And today's story jumps forward in time about three months Now, in that time, the Israelites have been journeying through the wilderness, and God continued to provide for them, despite the fact that they continually grumbled and complained, as I'm sure any of us would if we were wandering around a desert for three months without easy food or water, not knowing where we're going or when we'd get there. But God always listened, He always responded, He always provided. And then finally, they come to Mount Sinai. And I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. In the third day, from the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim, came to the Sinai wilderness, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, this is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although, all the, the, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people responded together, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. This is a pivotal moment in the unfolding of God's plans and purpose for his people and the world. Here God reveals what it means for Israel to be his people how they are to live as his people, and why. This is the moment where Israel enters into a covenant with God, into a binding agreement that they will walk in his ways, they will obey his law. He is God, and his ways are good. His ways lead to life. And if they do that, then he will be their God, and they will be greatly blessed by him. This is an amazing moment where God and his people are tightly bound together, Now, in some ways, they already were. This isn't the first covenant, but if you want to come and talk to me about covenants afterwards, I'm more than happy to do that. I love them. Um, But we're going to stick with this one today because this is the covenant that is the defining one for God's people as a nation. This is the covenant where the law is given, the Ten Commandments, and then, well, like a lot more detailed law after that. Yet, did you notice what comes first? What comes before the law Let's read those critical verses again. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my commandment, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. He says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings And brought you to myself I repeat this because I think a lot of us miss this and I certainly never used to realize that grace preceded the law grace came first salvation came first deliverance came first before the law and this covenant God loved his people he heard their cries He saw their suffering and he acted to save them. And that's what we've been seeing over the last three weeks. And this act of grace is foundational. When God gives the Ten Commandments at the beginning of chapter 20, he starts with, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, and then do not have any gods besides me. This refrain is repeated again throughout Leviticus, which details a whole bunch of laws, reminding the Israelites of why they agreed to this covenant, this law. Be holy, be set apart, welcome the foreigner, be honest, be generous, for I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. The law isn't and never was about a set of rules, but about living in relationship with the Lord God who brought them out of Egypt, who acted in grace to save them. And when we jump forward a 100 or two years later to Judges, when Israel is in this spiral of sin and judgment, constantly turning away from God and ignoring the law and covenant, yet before God charges them with breaking the covenant, he reminds them of what he did first. I brought you out of Egypt, and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. Jump forward again 400 years, uh, 400 years after Judges to Jeremiah. When God through Jeremiah is accusing Israel again of turning away, he says of them, they stopped asking, where is the Lord who br- brought us from the land of Egypt? Israel, God's people, were defined by this act of grace. It was key to who they were and their understanding of who God is. It is only after this grace that the law came. Remember our passage. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant. First, God acted in grace. Then he gave the Israelites the choice to enter into this covenant with him, which I hope you remember they willingly entered into in verse 8. God is saying, first I acted to save you, therefore, if you make this choice to keep my covenant, first grace, then law, which we're about to see is also a gift of grace. For what is the purpose or reason for the law? Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be a kingdom of priests and my holy nation. What a fantastic blessing of being in covenant with the Lord God who brought them out of Egypt. He offers them more grace. Though He is creator of all, though everything belongs to Him, they would be His prized possession, His prized treasure above all else. Great news for them. But also great news for everyone else, because not only that, but they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Which probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you if you have no idea about why priests are a big deal. So let me tell you why. Within Israel, they had a really important role. One commentary puts it like this. The priest is set apart by a distinctive way of life, consecrated, which means like made sacred or extra specially dedicated to the service of God and dedicated to ministering to the needs of the people. That is, they were representatives of God to the people. The priest stood between the people and God, pointing them to him, showing them how to live rightly with him according to all they had agreed to, caring for them. They were also representatives of the people to God. Uh, For example, every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, which was where God dwelt, to make atonement for all of Israel that is to make this annual act of reconciliation between God and his people. The priest served God and pointed the nation toward him. So that's a very brief summary of what Israel's priests did for the people of Israel. And as we read in these verses in Exodus, that's what Israel is supposed to be for the rest of the world. While we know that in Christ, God invited all people into his family, into eternal life. That was not a new concept. God has always desired all people to know him. That was Israel's purpose as his treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests. That means they were supposed to live in a distinctive way, in a way that showed who their God was, so that other nations would see God through them and hopefully come to love and serve him too. That is what it meant to be a holy nation. They were to be holy because God is holy, because they had chosen to follow the one who saved them. But even more than that, so that others would choose to follow the one who could save them. And the Old Testament laws are full of provisions for those who wanted to join the nation of Israel through choice. God's heart is and always has been for all people. And this is why the law is exciting Why the law is a great gift, because the law is how God revealed himself, how he cared for his people in showing them how to live life in a way that is life-giving and holy, how he showed them what is important. The law is foundational and amazing. Now, I'm not going to read out the Ten Commandments now, but if you want, they're at the beginning of Exodus 20. But Jesus gives us a perfect summary of them and the whole law in Matthew 22 when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. The law is about love. It, has a, it was a great blessing on Israel who now had the manual to live as God intended and experience His great blessings in their lives. And it was a great blessing to the whole world who could now see the God who saved his people and entered into a binding relationship with them. And they were invited into that. I hope you can see with me that this moment in Exodus is an absolute pinnacle in the history of God's people. We see the grace of God in acting to save his people before they had made a commitment to him. We see the grace of God in offering them this covenant, a binding agreement that would bring great blessing to them. We see the grace of God in the giving of his law to show them how to live life well. And we see the grace of God in choosing a people to be a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations, inviting all to know him. God has always shown grace. He has always acted in love toward his people. He has always invited others in. The character and actions of God are consistent throughout history. The God of Exodus is the same as the God of the New Testament. And I hope we've been seeing that throughout this series. Another thing we've been seeing throughout this series is the consistency of humanity for that's not such great news. There was so much potential in this covenant, in this commitment to God, to the law, to the covenant, to being a kingdom of priests. And yet over and over, Israel rejected God. They forgot the Lord God who had brought them out of Egypt. God is patient, but eventually, they broke the covenant so completely and permanently It seemed like there could be no coming back from that. And yet, hundreds of years after this moment in Exodus, in the midst of Israel suffering the consequences of turning away from God, in the midst of them having well and truly turned their back on God, ignoring his pleas and chances for return, God says these words concerning his grace, covenant, and law through the prophet Jeremiah who lived at the time where Jerusalem, which was like their main city, fell, and Israel ceased to be a kingdom at all. We read in Jeremiah 31, Look, the days are coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt my covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. In the face of his people's rebellion and their failure to live as a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, their failure to invite others into the knowledge of God, he acts once more in grace. This new covenant spoken of in Jeremiah is the one we live in today through Christ, and understanding God's action in the story of Exodus helps us to see more clearly his character and understand more deeply the love that he has shown the world in Christ. Once more, despite his people giving him more than enough reason to write them them and the rest of humanity off, he acts Instead and first, in grace, through Jesus. the story of Israel over hundreds of years shows that humanity is simply unable as a whole, to be faithful to God. Sin holds too much power over us. We give in to it so easily. Living God's way seems hard. Living like everyone else seems easier and more attractive even though it leads to bad things. It leads to the worst thing, separation from God. But God loves us so much, and he shows that love in his grace. He shows his grace in acting to save and deliver his people. I mean, John 3.16 is a classic for a reason. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Just as we saw God's grace in saving his people through his mighty act, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, we see his grace again in saving his people through sending his one and only son to die on the cross, to bring them out of slavery to sin, to rise again defeating sin and death for all who believe in him. And after this act of grace, again we see the covenant and the law, just as in Exodus. It just looks a little bit different now. Remember the spoiler? Jesus didn't get rid of the law, but he fulfills it. He lived in perfect obedience under this old covenant, and now he stands between us and God. We stand in his perfect obedience. And as we read in Jeremiah, the law is now within us written on our hearts. And what does that mean? Well, it means that with the Spirit of God within us, we are transformed. Yes, there's still this struggle to do what is right as a Christian because we're human and the world is still broken until Jesus returns. But there is this deep desire to walk in God's ways and a greater ability to do so through the Spirit, not ourselves. We no longer look to a list of laws to tick off the right things to do, but rather we have the law of the Spirit within us, as it says in Romans 8, which brings us life and peace. We can look to the law of the Old Testament to learn more about God's character, but we are not bound to it in the same way, destined to turn away from it. Rather, the Spirit works within us to keep us turned toward God and in relationship with him, walking in his ways. This is great news for us. If we believe in Jesus, we have eternal life. We have his spirit within us, helping us, showing us how to live, guiding us, and his spirit will never leave us. It guarantees our eternal salvation. But this is also great news for the world because this enables us to live out our calling, as described in 1 Peter. And this should sound pretty familiar to you. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Our purpose is the same, to live as God's people, walking in his ways, showing and declaring who he is, so that others would come to know him and experience his grace and love. We are a royal priesthood. We are supposed to live in a distinctive way, in a way that shows who God is, so that others would see God through us and would hopefully come to love and serve him too. That is what it means for us to be a holy nation. We are to be holy because God is holy because we have chosen to follow the one who saved us, but even more so that others would choose to follow the one who offers them grace and salvation in Christ. So before I finish up, I want to challenge you to think about what that actually looks like. If we are supposed to be set apart or living in a way that is different so that others will see, what does that mean? And even more, not that they just see him, but that their desire to know him, desire to experience his love and grace, because it is an astounding, life-changing, life-giving, life-bringing grace. It should shape our lives, and we should want others to experience it. There is nothing like the grace and love of God. So, does your life look any different to your neighbor's life? And does it look different in a good way? Or are you self-righteous, viewing yourself as better than them because you're a Christian? Do you only focus on telling others what they're doing wrong? I think that can be a real temptation sometimes when we forget how reliant we are on God's grace. Or we can be tempted to be superficial. Are you polite and generally friendly? doing your due diligence to be generically welcoming but avoiding more than a cursory, hey, great to see you, how are you going? There's a temptation to avoid being genuine and real and returning as quickly as possible to our comfort zone. Rather than these things, we should be defined by the law of the Spirit of God, the law of love written on our hearts, the Spirit dwelling within us. In John 13, Jesus says, I give you a new command love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love should define us. Will a non Christian visit our church and be struck by the love that binds us together? Will they see that we deeply love God and we deeply love one another? If they get to know us and the way we relate to one another, will they see us genuinely loving each other in tangible ways? Not just a beloved in-crowd, but a place where no one is left on the outs. We should be constantly asking ourselves these questions and looking for ways to love one another as God first loved us. And not just one another, but our neighbor, those who don't believe, Remember the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love means acting towards others in a certain way. And believe it or not, 1 Corinthians 13 wasn't just written for weddings, but the whole church. And it tells us, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not irritable, and it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Does the way you, does the way we treat people reflect this? I just want to pause here really briefly to give some needed nuance. Because I know that these verses have been weaponized by some. And they have been used to keep people in situations where they're mistreated or denigrated or abused. And that is not the will of God. Love does not mean staying in situations where you submit yourself to harm, whether that harm is emotional or mental or physical, anything. God is love, love is kind. Requiring you to stay in abusive situations is not kind, it is not love, and it is not what God wants. God wants you out of there. Putting others first and enduring all things are not about staying in abuse. These words are spoken in a really specific context, teaching a church more broadly how they are to live as the body of Christ. So if these verses have been twisted in your life, please hear that God's heart is for you, for your healing, for your safety, for your freedom. And my prayer is that this would be a community where you learn the truth of these verses and the truth of God's love. Because that is our purpose, brothers and sisters. Love is patient and kind. It is humble. It puts others first. Love is life-giving. It is living in a life-giving way, looking for opportunities to act for the benefit of others, speaking in life-giving, loving ways. When you are in someone's life, do you add to it in a way that reflects the love that God has shown you? Love must define us because love defines God. God loved his people by showing them grace first, He saved his people from slavery in Egypt first. Then he gave them the law that would enable them to live out their purpose as God's chosen people, as a kingdom of priests to the world. And in the same way, when his people messed things up seemingly beyond repair, God again loved his people, loved us first by showing grace. He saved us in Christ writing his law onto our hearts through the giving of his spirit so that we would be able to live out our purpose as God's chosen people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, representing him, his grace, and his love to this world. I'll pray as the band comes back. Father, I thank you for your grace and your love for us and for the whole world. We thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us through the law, through Christ. We thank you that you are always the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That we can look to the Old Testament and see and trust that you are a God who acts in grace and love, that you welcome all in. We thank you for the gift of the law and how you have ridden it onto our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And I pray that this community here would be your kingdom of priests. that others would come here and see and experience your love and grace, that we would go out to the community around us and show them your grace. Amen.